and just fellowshipping with my church family. So much that I'm going to invite you all over to my house tonight. Seriously. <laughs> At 630, um, 2622 Madison Avenue. It's, uh, if you don't remember that, talk to me after church. 630 tonight. 2622 Madison Avenue. Okay. Um, the reason to get together tonight really is just for fellowship. Iron sharpens iron, doesn't it? And there's a lot that you can do in a backyard or in somebody's kitchen that you just can't do on a Sunday morning in a church service, around a kitchen table. Um, we're not going to have any dismissal time, except for if you start to see me put my pajamas on, you know it's time to go. <laughs> That's what my dad used to do. We'd have company at the house, and my dad would just go upstairs and come back down with his pajamas on, I guess the, the guest kind of took the hint. <laughs> I won't be quite that blunt. I'll just start yawning a lot. No, I'm joking. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, we're in the book of Acts. Acts is historical narrative. It's a story. Uh, stories are fun because they're real life. They're people going through everyday trials and challenges. And there's no one that I can think in the Bible other than Jesus himself that went through more difficult challenges than the Apostle Paul. Um, there may be an Old Testament saint that, that went through some harsh difficulties, and there's many, many examples in the Bible but Paul certainly captures our imagination in the New Testament. He says that he was in shipwrecks, he was in beatings, stripes laid on his back, stoned to death at one city, and now he's coming back to the city of Jerusalem to bring a love offering from all the Gentiles to the suffering church at Jerusalem. He's taken a Nazarite vow. He's totally committed to his Jewishness. Even though he is an apostle to the Gentiles, he was raised in the city of Jerusalem. He was raised by the most prominent Pharisee of his day, Gamaliel. He was zealous for all the traditions of his fathers, and he's not abandoned a single belief that he had that the Old Testament taught about, and yet he finds himself on trial because he believes in the literacy and the inerrancy and the absolute authority of the Bible. And those around him were questioning everything that he was doing. And so he finds himself on trial in this chapter. He split the Sanhedrin down the middle because he made one statement about the resurrection of the dead, and he knew the Pharisees would passionately defend the resurrection of the dead. He knew that the Sadducees would vehemently disagree with him, so Paul's strategy there, inspired by the Holy Spirit to get him out of that noose, was to divide them and conquer them. So they arraign a time that he's going to be heard, and they try to kill him. They, 40 men, more, more than 40 men, come up with a conspiracy that we're going to ask him to come for more information when you send him, we're lying in wait, we're going to ambush him, we're going to kill him. 
And we saw last week how God worked all things together for Paul's good. And we know that God does the same for you and I. We have that promise in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. For we know that God works all things, all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become formed to the image of his Son. God wants you and I to look like Jesus. Every one of us who believes in Christ, he has predestined us to be conformed to look like Christ. And we know that all these things are working together for our good to make us more like Jesus. And Paul here is becoming more and more like Christ. He is dying daily. He is learning day by day that I no longer live and it is Christ who lives in me and the life which he now is living in his flesh, he's living by the faith of the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. And he's put on trial here for his Christian faith, really. And as I read this passage, I had to ask myself, if I was put on trial for my Christian faith, would, bear, would there be enough evidence to convict me? Would people in my own home who know me the best, would they say, yes, my dad, my husband, my papa, my, my grandpa, he lives like a Christian. Would they say, yes, there's enough evidence, there's enough proof in his life that he is a follower of Jesus. My coworkers, when I go to Ben Loman High School in the afternoon and I coach, would they be able to rail against me and say, yes, this guy's a Christian, and here's the proof. This is what he's done. This is the way he lives. This is the way he acts. When I'm out in public, would people be able to say, there is something different about this guy? Could people say there's something unique and something different about you? Is there enough evidence to convict you that you are a follower of Jesus? There's two areas broad areas that they're going to prove that evidence. And what would those two things be? The broad scheme of those things, what would those be? The way you treat people, the way you live your life, exactly. The way you live, that would be one of the broad. And what would be the other one? Your talk. And that, again, Sheila, you're right, that would fit under the way you live your life. Was that you, Sheila? No, okay. She's a ventriloquist. (laughs) So again, that would be under that broad, the way you live your life. So what would the other umbrella be? Chris? You're right on. You've got the the right idea, Chris. It's what you believe. What you believe, your Bible study notes, and what you practice. That's what people would convince them that you are a follower of Jesus. Are your beliefs different from the world? And are your practices different from the world? I want to use an Old Testament illustration. Daniel. Now, Daniel lived in a Persian empire. They tried everything they could to change Daniel's testimony. They tried to change his belief system, and they tried to change the way he lived his life. 
They changed his name from Daniel, God is my judge, to Belshazzar, honoring a pagan god. They tried to not only change his belief system, they tried to change his lifestyle. And they brought him food that was forbidden for him to eat. And Daniel said, I have requested of the chief eunuchs that I will not defile myself with the portion of the king's meat nor with the wine that he's offered me. He says, I want to live as an orthodox follower of the God of the Hebrews. I am not going to change my lifestyle. And I am not going to change my beliefs. You can change my language. You can change my name. But I still believe in the one true God. And I'm not going to eat this unkosher diet. Now, when Daniel exalted himself above all the other governors, Darius decides that he wants to exalt Daniel and actually make him like the vice regent of Persia. And so they try to find some accusation against Daniel. But because Daniel lives such a godly and faithful and consistent life, they couldn't find any accusation against Daniel. So they come up with this idea. We will find an accusation against the way he serves his God. We know that Daniel won't violate certain principles. But if we enact a law and he continues to follow his godly desires and his godly principles, we can catch Daniel out. So they come to Darius and to this great idea and say, Darius, let no one make any petition or prayer to anyone else for 30 days except for you. And Darius, like a big dummy, signs the, the edict. I was trying to think of what our president is signing all these things on. Exec- yeah, Darius signs the executive order. Doesn't think about it. He just signs it. Well, sure enough, Daniel is not going to change. The only way that they could find something against Daniel was because Daniel would live his life consistently with the Word of God. And the only way that they could find an accusation against the Apostle Paul was that he lived his life consistent with what his biblical convictions were. So if they're going to prove that you and I are followers of Jesus, may our lives stand out. And may we be convinced of what the biblical core values and the biblical core truth that we will not compromise on, that we will not change on. I watched an interview about two months ago of a Hollywood actor, and this guy has gone out on a limb because he believes in Jesus Christ and he believes in the power of the gospel and they had him on Fox News and he said we cannot acquiesce we cannot yield to those who hate our God and our Jesus we are living in a time where we can no longer compromise liberal theology has compromised truth Our lifestyles, we have compromised truth. When we stand up for biblical truth, 
We will be distinct and we will stand out. And he says we can no longer afford to be in the shadows. We can no longer afford to take a back seat and to be apologetic that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite actors, well, he wasn't a great actor, but he was a great president, Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan made a speech, and this speech was pretty powerful. I'm trying to find it here in my notes. <laughs> the speech was called A Time for Choosing. And Ronald Reagan said this, You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We will preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we will sentence our children to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. I think there's some spiritual principles. We have a rendezvous with destiny. This generation, either we will stand for Jesus Christ, either we will stand for the gospel, either we will believe this book and we will offer our children our next generation, the only hope for life. You see, the world is without God, the world is without Christ, and the world is without hope. And if we acquiesce, if we retreat, if we stop proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ has come to forgive sinners... And to restore our relationship, we are robbing from this generation that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior who you and I are looking forward to. And if we keep from telling them the good news and shining our light, we will plunge this next generation of Americans into darkness that I don't know if they'll ever recover you go to Great Britain today, and there's only a remnant of true believers. Less than 2% of Great Britain attends an evangelical Christian service every Sunday. And we are products of the great reformation that happened and came out of England. America is fast on the heels of Western Europe that is post-Christian, and by and large, agnostic and atheistic. And we see it in our public schools. We see it in our policies by government. But God forbid that we see it in our pulpits. God forbid that we see it in our congregations that say we name the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that there will be enough evidence to convict, convict this church and this assembly and each one of us as individual believers, that we stand out for Jesus Christ. Two things that Paul readily confessed to. He readily confessed that he worshiped God, 
And he readily confessed that he had a pure conscience serving his Lord. The way he believed and the way he lived his life is what brought him into this trial in Acts chapter 24. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and I'm going to ask you to read and stand and read with me. So let's read together Acts chapter 24. I'm not going to preach the whole chapter. Let's stand together and read. If you can't stand, I understand. I'm not asking you or demanding anybody to stand, but if you can and you're physically able, just stand out of reverence for the Word of God, or you can exalt God in your heart if you have to stay seated. Now, after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullius. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he'd called upon Tertullius, he began his accusation, seeing that through you we enjoy peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him, and we wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came down and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain that all these things which, have, which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented to maintain that these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak a word, he answered, Insomuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it's no more than twelve days since I went up from Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting crowds, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things which they are now accusing me. Here's the key verse. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which is called a sect or heresy, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing in all things that are written in the law and the prophets, I have hope in God that they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. Now, we're not going to have time to read all of it, but I encourage you to go ahead and read it today. But I want us just to get down to the end verse 24, and after some days, Felix came with Drusilla, and she was Jewish. He sent for Paul, and he heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid, and he answered, go your way for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Procius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix 
wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Father, God, there's so much in this story. Help us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to understand what you want us to take home and to apply to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. What are the basics that you and I need to confess to? They brought all these accusations against Paul. He's a pestilence fellow. I've been accused of that. They accused him of being a mover of dissension. He's stirring things up all over the world. Praise God. Wouldn't that be a great accusation of you? Wherever you go, you're stirring things up. You're actually making people think. You're challenging their thoughts. You're challenging the way they've always done things. You're presenting truth to them that makes them question and makes them wonder. Next thing they said, you are a ringleader of a sect called the Nazarenes. What a wonderful accusation to be made of us. You are a ringleader that follows Jesus of Nazareth. You love this Jesus of Nazareth. You are one of his followers. What's wrong with you? Don't you know that this guy's outdated? That he's not politically correct? You are a follower of Jesus. And then the next accusation was completely made up. That he went in and tried to defame He brought Gentiles into the temple. That was a lie. And so when Paul comes down to his confession, he says, I confess to you. I agree with you. I'm going to say the exact same things. I am guilty of loving Jesus. I am guilty of wanting people to think about the power of the gospel. Would that be our confession today? Yes, I am guilty of following Jesus. I am guilty of being a ringleader. I love my Savior. I'm proud of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. I agree. I confess. I confess that I worship God. What a horrible crime. And in America today, that's about where it's at, isn't it? I confess, yes, I worship a living God who loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's becoming a crime. He says, yes, I worship God. I want us to look at the, sec- the next phrase, according to the way. And then we'll look at the relative pronoun next. This is going to be a, a bit by bit. I'm going to really kind of camp on this one verse. And so just bear with me as we just look at each, kind of, each word at a time. He says, I confess that I worship God according to the way. The way was a term that was given to the apostles and to the disciples by their enemy. 
They were called the way. Now, what does that imply, the way? It implies several things. It implies that they lived their life consistently. They had a certain way that they lived. They had a certain way that they acted. They had a certain way that they treated others. They were a part of the way. It had everything to do with the way they lived their life. It consumed them. It had every fiber of their body. And he said, I am a part of the way. I'm not who I used to be. In fact, Paul used to persecute those who were of the way. He went to the chief priest and he demanded of him letters so that he could go to Damascus and that he could arrest anybody who was of the way and bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul says, I confess that I am a part of this way. Yes, I will identify with all the embarrassment. I will identify with all the stigma that goes with being a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to bear his marks. I want to participate in his suffering. I want to participate in the glory of his resurrection. And that should be the confession of every child of God. He was a part of the way. Interesting term. It implies to Christians because of their mode of conduct, their beliefs, that were profoundly different. It also means as Christians we consistently conduct ourselves in a manner that portrays Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. A good verse for all of us to memorize would be 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. He who says he abides in him, he ought also himself to walk even as he walked. I'm a part of the way. You are a part of the way. Secondly, this way, we have a pronoun describing the way, which they call a sect. The Old King James uses the word heresy because that's the Greek word that's actually pronounced heresy. Now, in the New Testament, heresy doesn't have the connotations that we give to it today. When we think of the word heresy, we think of somebody who's way off doctrinally. In the New Testament time, heresy didn't have that connotation. Heresy meant someone who lived in a distinct way that delineated them from others that showed their uniqueness. And Paul says, yes, I worship God according to that way which they call a sect, a heresy. It meant you lived because you had a certain set of convictions. It did have a negative sense in the first century, and that meant a party spirit or one who divided. And Paul said, yes, I will divide over core values. I will divide over doctrine. I will divide over Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was not a prophet. 
Jesus was God incarnate. Jesus fulfilled all of our messianic hopes. Paul sees himself as one with convictions, willing to follow them, and he's not willing to sacrifice truth for the sake of peace. We cannot sacrifice peace just for having to sacrifice truth just for the sake of peace. This, I think, is one of Satan's greatest strategies, is to put fear in the hearts of believers so that we will yield to the power that be in order to maintain peace. The unique claims of Christ can never be sacrificed. And Paul said, yes, I'm a part of the way, and it is called a sect. He says, I worship God. How does he describe this worship? He calls it the worship of the God of my fathers. Okay, let's, again, we're going to stop, and we're just going to analyze that phrase. What is Paul confessing here to? He's confessing that I have not deviated one iota. I haven't moved one single bit from the teachings of Moses in the garden. I'm believing everything that's been handed down to me by my forefathers, and that's the way I worship God. I'm not bringing in an alien idea. I'm not bringing in a heretical or a new sect, a divisive sect. If it's divisive, it's because I am believing what Christians always claim they believed. If we believe that men are to pastor and not women, we are not being divisive. We are believing what God's word has always taught. If we believe that women are created as women and they're created equal under God, but they have different roles, we are not deviating. We are believing what God said in the beginning. I have created them male and female. If we believe in the sanctity of marriage, that God has designed one man for one woman for one lifetime, we are not being sectarian. We are not being divisive. We are believing the faith of our forefathers. We are believing in the word of God that's been handed down to us. And Paul said, yes, I am guilty, but I am following the God of my fathers. I'm not introducing new concepts. I'm not introducing new ideas. I'm not introducing philosophy. I'm not introducing psychology. I am believing in the authority of the word of God, that it is the power of God unto salvation, that the word of God is living and active and powerful. It's a discerner of our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And Paul says, this is what I believe. We have to be very, very careful to anchor our beliefs firmly in the rock of the apostles' teaching. This book finished in the book of Revelation. And John the apostle said, Cursed is anyone who adds anything to this book. We have to be careful with our doctrinal creeds, our confessions, and even our theology books and our commentaries that we read, because, beloved, they are not inspired. 
There's some great thoughts out there. There's some great confessions. There's some great creedal witnesses that you and I can agree to. But we don't have to agree to all of it. We need to be discerning. We need to be like the apostles did in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verse 2, Acts 2, verse 42, and it says this, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. May we only be guilty of that. I want to know what the book says, what the Bible says. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in him, rooted and grounded, steadfast in the faith. Beware lest anyone cheat you, rob you, spoil you, through what? Through philosophy, through vain traditions, and the philosophy and the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who's the head of all principality and power. That's the God that we worship. We worship the God of our spiritual forefathers, the apostles. The second thing that he said about the way he worshiped God, the next comma, we've got, I worship God of my fathers, comma, Believing all things. Which things? We've got the pronoun which. Which are written where? In the law and the prophets. Our beliefs cannot be a spiritual buffet. We can't go down the buffet line and say, you know what? I like what it says about this, but I don't like what it says about that. Our church is going to emphasize this point, but we're going to de-emphasize that point. Paul says, I believe all things, all of it. It might be an embarrassment for you to go out and debate an intellectual because you believe in a six-day creation. But I tell you, the more science and the more evidence they find, the more the evidence supports the biblical account. You might be belittled or ridiculed because you believe a global flood covered this entire earth. But Paul said, I believe all things that are written. I believe all of it. I believe the hard teachings of Jesus. I believe I'm to pray for my enemies. I believe I'm supposed to love people that hate me. Now, I might not always do it. But we don't have the right to pick and choose what part of the book we're going to believe and what part we're going to follow. And Paul says, I worship the God of my fathers. I believe all things that are written. And he uses this phrase in the law and the prophets. That's a term in the New Testament for the entire canon of Scripture. Jesus used it on the road to Emmaus. He used the law and the prophets, expounded all the things concerning himself. What do you and I believe about this book? What does North Valley Bible Church teach about this Bible? We teach what it says about itself in Psalm chapter 12 and verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, purified as silver in the furnace of the earth seven times. He will keep them. He will preserve them from this generation forever. God's word is without flaw. I believe Psalm 19 and verse 7. The law of the Lord is 
perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing of the heart. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The commandment of the Lord is pure and righteous altogether. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. And he said every jot or tittle will no wise pass from the law until it's all fulfilled. We need to claim hold of historic Christianity. We need to believe all things that are written in the Scripture. And then thirdly, we need to have a hope. We need to have a hope for the future. This is what distinguishes you and I from all other religions. Our Savior did not stay in the grave. He is alive, and He has promised a future resurrection for all those who believe, and He's promised a future resurrection for all those who reject Him. You cannot be neutral about Jesus, the hope of the resurrection. We have a future resurrection to look forward to. Look at the irony here. The irony is that they themselves accepted the belief of the resurrection. Excuse me. I have a hope in God, verse 15. Look at the witch. He's done this every time in his testimony, which they themselves also accept. I'm on trial because of a belief system that they themselves confess to be true. What is the difference then? The difference, I think, we find it in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Many of the rulers knew that Jesus was the Christ, but they were unwilling to confess him because they loved the praises of man more than the praises of God. And Paul is saying, I have a belief. If you guys were honest, you would have accepted it long time ago. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, and he said, we know you are a teacher that has come from God. It wasn't just Nicodemus. They knew it. They were unwilling to confess it. They were unwilling to be put out of the synagogue because they liked man's admiration rather than God. So they reject a hope that they themselves believed in, that the Bible, the Old Testament, talked about. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 says, And all of them will sleep in the dust. This is Daniel. This is the Old Testament prophet. And Paul says, I believe this. I hope this. All are going to believe in the dust. All are going to sleep in the dust. And they shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting contempt. Paul was not introducing any new belief, no ideologies, no new philosophy. This hope in the resurrection was talked about in the Old Testament. Jesus talked about a resurrection of the just and the unjust. In John chapter 5, 
In verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in the words that I speak to you will not come into the judgment, but has passed from death into life. There will be a future resurrection based on your faith and believing in Jesus Christ. And your faith and believing in Jesus Christ will be modeled by your life. Just a few verses later, Jesus said this, Marvel not, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Paul is believing what Daniel said. Paul is believing what Jesus said. They will all come forth, those that have done good, unto the resurrection of life. Jesus is not talking about work salvation here, because in the same context, he says, he who believes in me will not come into judgment. He's saying, those who believe in me will live a different life. And those who have done evil unto the resurrection of condemnation. There are going to be two resurrections. And we, as followers of Christ, we have this incredible hope. But we also have this incredible burning passion to tell others that Christ is the only way to escape condemnation. He alone pays for our sin. He alone has raised himself from the dead. And we tell people that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to avoid because there's going to be two judgments. The first resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. And then those at his coming. So when is the resurrection of the just? It's at his coming. That's taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 23. Jesus is the first fruits, and then those who are alive, we will be caught up with the Lord, and we will meet the Lord in the air, and we will ever be with the Lord. But every man in his own order, Christ is the first fruits. Afterwards, they that are Christ at his coming. Revelation 20 and verse 6, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection, as such as the second death hath no power, they shall be priests and gods of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. This is the resurrection of the just. The resurrection of the unjust will come at the end of the thousand years. Revelation 20 and verse 5. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years are finished. The only charge that the Jews could get to stick against Paul and against his followers is that he affirmed the resurrection of Christ from the dead. All Paul had to do to end this trial, all he had to do to be dismissed, was to deny that Jesus Christ rose himself from the dead, that there will be a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust at the end times. Felix didn't know what to do. Look at verse 22. Felix just adjourns the case. When he heard these things, having, no more, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes, I will make known my decision of your case. This morning, I want us to bring this to some conclusion on how we can bring application of what we read this morning. You notice at the beginning of this chapter that the enemies 
brought a man named Tertullius. I'm probably massacring his name. He was of Greek origin, probably a convert convert to Judaism, or he was a Hellenistic Jew and was probably very well educated. He was a hired orator to bring accusations against the Apostle Paul. And here's my application for us today. Let us not move away from the simplicity that's in Jesus. The world's philosophers, the world's rhetoric, the world's logic, it cannot compete with simple biblical truth. Thank you for that. Amen. Second application. I want to give us a verse. Don't let your minds be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3 Paul was seen as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Does the world see you as distinct because you are uncompromising in your stand for Christ? Second application. Does the world see you distinct because of your uncompromising stand for Christ? And I want to give a biblical Bible verse again for this one. 1 Peter 2.12 Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they might by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. 1 Peter 2.15, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorant and foolish men. 1 Peter 4.16, Yet if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. One, the world's Skilled oratory cannot compete with simple truth. Number two, if you're going to be accused, let it be accused of being a Christian. Number three, Paul could have been released if he had not mentioned the resurrection. Do we worship God according to the historical core truths of the Christian faith? Do we believe all things that are written in the Scripture? Is it our goal to share Christ rather than the expediency of our own cause. It cost Paul two years in a Caesarean prison, but yet Felix heard the word of Christ preached to him. If you are guilty of being a Christian, they will know it by two ways, the way you live your life and by what you believe. I pray this week that you will take opportunities to tell people what you believe. But I also ask that God will help you this week when you come into those situations, when your behavior is on question, that you will act the way Christ would have you to act. We're doing a study in Sunday school, The Peacemaker, And he's made one prayer that stayed with me all week and last week. Before you do something, you ask God, say, Lord, 
I want to please you in my behavior right now. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for the example that it's left for us. Thank you, Lord, for Paul's uncompromising waiver for truth. Lord, it's easy to come together with other believers and say amen, and I'm guilty of it. It's easy to come together as a church and to preach boldly the things that we believe because we are in the amongst of friends. We're not going to be persecuted for saying, I believe this or I believe that in this company of friends, Lord. God, it's when we walk out of the doors of this assembly this morning that we ask the Holy Spirit to empower us, to embolden us, and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to sanctify Him in our hearts. God, this doesn't mean that we're going to go out and we're going to be obnoxious about our faith. God, may we be gentle and meek. May we try to restore people spiritually with gentleness and with kindness and with love, but at the same time, uncompromising truth. Father, I believe that this generation has a rendezvous with destiny. Either we're going to tell our children about the greatest hope that this world has ever seen, or God, our next generation is going to go into spiritual darkness. Lord, I pray that it will be our confession that we worship God. We worship the God of the apostles. We worship the Savior that walked this earth. We worship the God who spoke and life came out of nothing. We believe all things that are written in the scripture. And we have a glorious hope that this same Jesus who was taken up to heaven, he will come in like manner as we've seen him go into heaven. Oh, Father, help us to be convicted of Christians by what we believe and the way we live. We pray this in Jesus' name.